Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. of the Modern School of Film. Welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, slip away from your life. Actor, writer, Yafet Koto is with us. Welcome. Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. The website is Murmur Radio, M-U-R-M-U-R radio.com. Social handles at MSF Murmur. That's Twitter, Instagram. If you'd like any time access to the show, just download the show. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever fine podcasts are not sold. <laughs> I'm ready to be sold, though. <laughs> if you have a subject you'd like me to address on the show, send me an email. Email me directly at the show, murmurradio, one word, at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest and bring you on if you want. If you don't want to come on, we don't have to bring you on. I don't have to bring you on. Just listen. Shoot us a note. Welcome. Welcome back to Murmur. Every Murmur is one subject and one guest. Today's guest is an actor of over 70 movies. I love putting the number of movies, not that if it was only six or seven, he still wouldn't be an actor, but he's happened to act in over 70 movies, 75 plus. He's also written books, published books, fiction books, nonfiction books. He's also acted in some of the most badass movies I could think of. <laughs> I'll try not to make this a James Bond show. I'll try not to. Although he's been in Live and Let Die. It's also an anniversary year for one of his signature films, Alien. He's turning 40 this year. Who is this man? I'm talking about Yafet Kodo, our guest. And today's subject, retirement. I'm not patting myself on the back here, but retirement is one of the hardest subjects to take on. And it's a subject I've always wanted to take on and think about a lot. Retirement and why it's hard. Retirement is people don't like to say that word. People from any genre of work, art, politic, public facing, private facing, men and women, poets and poetesses, they don't like to say they're retired. They don't even like the way the word sounds. They don't like the word attached to them. They don't like to consider that they are retired. When one stops one's vocation, no matter what the genre. Yes, I want to talk to an artist today about this concept, but here's, here's the mediocre news. I don't know if he thinks he's retired. So therefore, I don't know if he is retired. There's two parts of being retired. There's a kind of external acknowledgement that that person is retired and an internal acknowledgement of retirement, which is always trickier because human beings don't like to say that term. One of the interesting things about an artist who retires is does art really hire you? Does the profession ever really hire you? It's ultimately a freelance profession. You have to be hired to be retired. <laughs> you can't spell retired without hired or something like that. Once I was complaining about work, I was dating this girl at the time and I said, I should retire. She said, you have to be hired into a job to change the job. 
And I think what she meant is you have to be hired by that industry in a way. And art, the work Yafet Koto has done as an actor, as an artist, it's always great. Do we ever get hired to do those things? Yes, we sign contracts. Sometimes contracts are called deal memos in film. They don't like to use the word C word, contracts, so they use deal memos. So can you retire when you've never actually been hired? <laughs> part of the confusion of today. So there's two confusions thus far with Yafet Koto. Has he in fact retired? And was he ever hired? <laughs> there are real reasons why artists retire from their work. It's oftentimes very physical. I know a sculptor who is often talking about her work in terms of arthritis, in terms of the physical pain it demands. Musicians, we don't often consider how physical musicianhood is. Acting, getting up really early, going to bed really late, not getting any sleep, whether you're an actor or a filmmaker or a production technician. Now I know, boo-hoo. But I'm not here to pour one out for artists who retire. I'm here to look at today, can it actually happen and what does it look like? And should we pay attention to it? As you think of actors in retirement, there are actors who will publicly go on record saying, I've retired or I am retiring. Daniel Day-Lewis is probably the most famous or infamous. And why that brings a slight smile to my face is he's retired several times. <laughs> he may be retired now, but he does say it, which is kind of interesting. Filmmakers have said it. George Lucas has said it and then come back and done work. Musicians have said it. I'm not touring anymore. This is my last album. Cut to another album, another tour. I'm not judging these slippery judgments, slippery pronouncements of being retired, but I'm much more curious about artists who never say the R word who we simply don't see much anymore. We haven't seen Yafet Koto act in a while. And, and when I say that, I'm referencing the bulk of work he did, starting in the very late 60s, cutting his teeth on Broadway. 1965, he replaced James Earl Jones in the play The Great White Hope. I mention that because James Earl Jones. Is James Earl Jones retired? No. I see him. I hear him. I hear him on CNN all the time. <laughs> but is he retired? I like that mysticism. Not seeing an artist for a while makes you wonder what they're ruminating on. When Terrence Malick, the filmmaker, went away after famously making only four films in a really small, spectacular stretch of film history, people wondered, is he coming back? We don't hear from him. So part of retirement, which is interesting, is not talking about it too much. And I think Gene Hackman, who never really said he was retired, now lives in Santa Fe. But he's someone, it's not that I wish he would come back because he's not what he was. We, none of us are what we were, what we was. <laughs> but I do miss Gene Hackman, missing artists who are with us, missing artists who are alive. Thomas Pynchon. The great author is alive. He's 80 years old, living in Long Island, I guess. I don't know. I don't think he's ever been photographed. I think he voiced himself on The Simpsons, though. But I th <laughs> if memory serves, the character wore a paper bag on his head. So these men and women are still with us. They are not doing what they've done. But Thomas Pynchon may be writing. You just not, You simply may not be reading it. It may not be published. He may not want it published. Or he may want it published. We don't know. The mysticism around retirement is fascinating. So beat one, nearly question one, nearly day one, nearly hour one, even though this is only an hour show, <laughs> will be to Yafet, are you retired? I don't know. Part of this retirement scheme, whether you're an artist or other form of captain or non-captain of vocation, is are you wanted? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about Yafet. I know I haven't seen him in a while, and I was thinking about him. I was wondering the dreaded, what has happened to him? He doesn't go on record a lot. And when he does go on record, and this is not what today's chat with Yafet is about, spoiler warning. When he has gone on the record recently, he's talked a lot about 50 plus years of visitations, extraterrestrial visitations. That will not be the focus of today. I may have a question or two to tie in, but it's simply because it would be irresponsible not to ask based on the fact that he said it. So being wanted, being desired is part of it. There's a famous, again, infamous story. Kevin Smith, the writer-director, was taking meetings. He wanted to revive this, the, the Fletch film franchise starring Chevy Chase's Fletch, which was based on the book series Fletch. And he took a meeting. Again, this is something he said it may or may not be true. And he wanted to redo the film, but he wanted Chevy Chase to be Fletch again. And the executive, paraphrasing what the executive said at the time was, we're not in the business of Chevy Chase movies anymore. So was he effectively retired at that lunch? <laughs> 
did he even know that? No, and that's the sad part, I think, for an actor. They may be involuntarily retired. You may divine that at some point along the way today. I'm not sure. I know he hasn't acted. I don't know if he wants to act, if he will act. I think he can act. Alien is back, 40 years after. (laughs) Has it ever left? The first four chapters made my four individual, cool, very different auteurs, Scott, Cameron, Fincher, Jean-Pierre Junet. So it's never really left. But Alien, the film, does hold a sacred space. And yeah, that is part of that incredible ensemble of actors who were not huge stars at the time. That was Sigourney Weaver's first film. They wanted the movie to be a star. You can only really do that in horror now. But can you even do that now? Different subject for a different day. Retirement. Retirement's been a notoriously slippery subject for me posing it to my guests. So when I approached Yafet and his team to come on the show, I didn't want to be immediately insulting and say, let's talk to him about the fact that he's retired. (laughs) It was based more on my observation. Is he working? Does he want to work? So it is a desirable subject for me, but it's not a desirable subject for the subject. Because talking again, maybe about films you did or being on the circuit of talking, which Yafet is not, but being on that circuit means you're not retired. So typically with an artist, with an actor, not talking is part of the retirement contract. Not always, but it is part of the contract. I can't talk to you about being retired because then I wouldn't be retired. It's a little fascinating and a little silly. Age is also part of the retirement stratagem, the retirement confusion. Currently, Yafet is 79 years old. Now, are there roles for 79-year-olds? Absolutely. Are they rare? Absolutely. And that leads, again, me to not knowing, in this case. (laughs) But again, it's often a third rail. It's a red A. It's whatever agnostic stigmata you'd like to call retirement. That's typically what retirement is. It's hard to get people to come out on this topic because it's such an emotional, human, age-based, vocation-based, how we see our vocation, how we see our age, how we see our life, how we see where we want to live, how we see what we want to surround ourselves with, how we see our own vulnerability, our physical vulnerability, our emotional vulnerability, our personal peccadilloes, our blind spots. So what better subject? (laughs) Retirement. (laughs) Yes. This is my first Bond lead. (laughs) Yafet was Mr. Big slash Dr. Kananga in Live and Let Die 1973, which was Roger Moore's first Bond. (laughs) It's an amazing Bond. I know people drag Roger Moore's history as Bond. I don't. I I think it's fascinating. That one in particular, because a majority of it takes place in the U.S. One of the first scenes is in New Orleans. Harlem is prominently featured. That's actually where Yafet was from. It also has some of the coolest villain names. Ironically, the right-hand man of the villain. It's ironic because he doesn't have a right hand. He doesn't have a right arm. It's all metallic. (laughs) But that character's name is Tee-Hee. T-E-E-H-E-E. I love that. Tee-Hee. One of the other henchmen is Whisper. Because he talks in a whisper, he can't talk above a whisper. And there's a really cool scene where he needs to communicate something urgently, but he can't because he only whispers. (laughs) And of course, a young Jane Seymour as Solitaire. Jane Seymour, haven't seen her in a while either. Has she retired? (laughs) So retirement, I think believe less the source, believe your eyes. Can someone put down their work successfully? And if they do, why? What has brought that on? It's a tender topic. And it's interesting with artists who are public facing and so part of our own lives, when their lives change, it touches us. It hits us. We want artists to be evergreen. So you will always have their work in that form, in its pristine form, in its perfect form, in its golden form. And retirement for some, for some artists, is a way to stay gold. Yafet Koda's work to me is gold. It's gold, silver, and bronze. (laughs) So I'm honored that he's here. I'm honored that I get to chat with him today. I'm doubly honored that you're with us to listen to the chat today because retirement or leaving the thing you love or not doing the thing you love invokes reflection because often retirement puts us in touch with time, with past, present, and future in a way that no other psychology does. Retirement is truly three time states bound. Today on Murmur Yafet Kodo. Now this. What's your name? Well, my name is Jim. But most people call me Jim. <laughs> okay, Jim. Since you are my guest and I am your host, what are your pleasures? What do you like to do? Oh, 
I don't know. Play chess. Screw. Well, let's play chess. Checkmate. Well, you devious son of a bitch. Happy days. Man, why you do that to yourself? <laughs> oh, you don't really want to know that. I do, I do. Well, if you must pry. I must, I must. I don't know if you ever heard of me before, but I used to be called the Waco Kid. The Waco Kid. He had the fastest hands in the West. In the world. Well, if you're the kid, then show me something. Oh, well, maybe a couple of years ago I could have shown you something, but today, look at that. Steady as a rock. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand. See, I knew you wasn't no Waco kid. You was just pulling my lariat. Oh, dearie, dear. Ah, well. Okay. See that, King? Yeah. Put your hands on both sides of it. Now, when I say go, you try to grab it first. Man, that's no contest. You're a mile away. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, when you hear the word go, you just try to grab it. Ready? Ready. Go. Hey. You looking for this? Well, raise my rent. You are the kid. Was. Yeah, I was the kid. Well, what happened? <coughs> oh, well, it got so that every pissant prairie punk who thought he could shoot a gun would ride into town to try out the Waco kid. I must have killed more men than Cecil B. DeMille. Got pretty gritty. I started to hear the word draw in my sleep. And one day, I was just walking down the street, and I heard a voice behind me say, Reach for it, mister. I spun around, and there I was, face to face, with a six-year-old kid. Well, I just threw my guns down and walked away. Little bastard shot me in the ass. So I limped to the nearest saloon, crawled inside a whiskey bottle, and I've been there ever since. Have a drink. Thanks. Anyway, that's all ancient history. Now you tell me your story. What's a dazzling urbanite like you doing in a rustic setting like this? Three, four. When you were young and your heart was an open book You used to say This ever-changing world in which we live in Makes you give in and cry Say live and let die Yeah, Tom Fontana on the show. Tom, legendary uh, TV creator, created Oz and also 
a pretty amazing show called Homicide, Life on the Street. At the very end of the interview, I asked him, because I loved the cast of Homicide so much and one particular actor, where is Yafet Koto these days? Man, I, I miss him as a performer. You know, I, I have no idea. I know after the show went off the air, or even actually before the show went off the air, he had moved to Toronto. Oh, wow. Um, but I haven't, uh, I haven't spoken to him and since the homicide went off the air. You know, it's funny, when you work with people for a long period of time, there's some that you talk to all the time, like Clark Johnson I talk to, or, De- or Richard Belzer. Right. Then there are other ones that just slip away from your life, and uh, Doff, it's one of those. I, I, hope he's, I hope he's well, I hope he's thriving, um, and uh, yeah, it'd be great to see him in something again. Well, we know where he is because he's with us today from a long way away. He doesn't typically do chats, so we're really honored to have him. He is a multi-award winning actor, director, writer, author, icon, trailblazer, 75 movies and TV shows and more. Uh, He once said, I wanted to be like Bogart or Cagney. Well, the good news is he became Yafet Kodo. Yafet meaning handsome in Hebrew, of course. Uh, His friends call him Sonny. Today, we'll call him Professor Kodo. Please welcome to Murmur Radio, Professor Yafet Kodo. Mr. Kodo, welcome to the show, man. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. In a few months, you'll be able to call me Rabbi Kodo because I've been studying to become a rabbi. Is that right? How long is that? Yep. How long has that um, history been writing itself? I know, you, obviously, you grew up in the Jewish faith, but when, when did you start that process to become a rabbi? I started the process while I was doing homicide. Oh, Wow. And it's been a long journey, and it's going to culminate itself in a couple of months. Congratulations, my friend. Thank you very much. Are you available for bar mitzvahs and brises at that point? <laughs> uh, it depends. I, I've got to do a little soul searching uh, before I do that. I, I want to go to Israel and then to the Cameroon. So before I do any of that, uh, even thinking those terms, I've got to do a little... Uh, a little spiritual journey. Do your friends still call you Sonny? Does anyone still call you Sonny? My older friends, when I run into them, they call me that, people I grew up with. But no one even hardly knows that. You know, My older friends, when I run into people I went to school with, they call me, hey, Sonny, they still, they still do it. They love to do it. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, man, how are you doing these days? How are you feeling? I'm doing very well. I'm okay. I've been running around Asia, China, uh, the Philippines. Uh, I've been doing very, very well. I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm preparing. I've written about. I've written some books that I'm going to uh, be releasing soon, uh, and then I'm going to go on a tour and start making my way back into making do what I do best of making movies. Did you ever retire from acting? Never. You know, actors say that occasionally. Yeah, I, I talked to um, to a couple of guys who told me they were going to retire. They did. Uh, Peter O'Toole told me in Baltimore he was going to retire. Um, Robert Mitchum told me he was going to retire, and he did. Uh, so, yeah, they say it, but I'm not going to say it. I'm not ready to retire. I think I think actors retire because they get tired of uh, of the system, and they uh, just get tired, especially after you've done a lot of movies. I've done about 72 movies, and I think maybe I've got about three or four more of them, and then I'm going to spend the rest of my time uh, uh, in a synagogue. Even thinking about you thinking about you have a few films left, what makes you think that? Like, what makes you quantify how many films you may want to do left? Because there's, there's no longer anybody writing scripts. Hollywood has gone into, into hell in the handbasket. I won't even go to the Academy Awards or any awards because Hollywood has become political. Hollywood become weird. And so that's why I stay the hell away from Hollywood. I have nothing to do with it. What would be the end for you in the sense? Like, what would be the last role? You know, you've played Idi Amin. You've played, you know, you've played uh, Kananga. You've played, you know, some guy named Parker on a small film called Alien, which I want to talk to you a little bit about. But is there is there a role? Is it a certain age that creates the desire to retire you know forget the system for a second let's talk about you personally what is it about you is it a physical thing because acting is a physical chore right we forget how physical it is it's mostly spiritual and psychological and you you when you when you do as many films as television shows i've done you see the 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 different levels of consciousness and the different uh, levels 
of, of spirituality in these projects, uh, you see the change. And unless you see that continuing change, you say, well, what am I doing? Playing the same thing I played last year? That's what make you. That's what will make you break down. I, I've seen a gradual change from the weak black man on screen to the to the middle of the road black man to the black extremist man to the black hero and now the black superhero. Well, where do they go after that? Because if you don't get back to telling those stories about people, you're just writing things that that, that for commercial purposes, and then I have to back out. I get a lot of scripts and a lot of offers still to this day, but most of those scripts and stories are things that I already did before. Why would I want to do it again? One of the innovations about working with a foreign director and a producer as like Tom Fontana, Tom Fontana is one of the best writers in the world. And so his scripts are amazing, which is the reason why I did those stories was his scripts. And so a guy like that, I don't even know why he's still in the business because he, he's, he's beyond the business. The only reason why I did that show was because of Tom Fontana and Barry Levinson. That's the only reason. Well, it's interesting, and, and uh, we're speaking with Yafet Koto on Murmur. It's interesting because a lot of people may not know you started writing scripts for Homicide when you thought maybe some of the storytelling had hit the wall. That's right. Talk a little bit about that, you know, in the sense of, Sometimes, as you say, actors retire or artists retire when the field is very dry or the field is very fallow. Um, when you were at Homicide, if you could think back, you know, 20, we're talking about 20 years now, did you feel certain things had stopped coming your way in the show and you thought, I want to tell my stories? I mean, and was Tom, was the, was Homicide receptive to that? Uh, because that's dangerous. Because if you don't feel there's something, there's material for you, you'll leave. I would imagine. There were two things, the reason why I wanted to write for the show. My uncle was a, a police officer who was slain on duty. New York, I knew the streets, and I wanted to be able to put a, a character in the streets rather than look at the stuff that people were writing about African-Americans. There's no one can write about African-Americans instead of another African-American. So when I saw a lot of these stories going towards African-American actors, then I, uh, Tom, Tom asked me, and NBC asked me to write, and I did. There were so many firsts. You know, you created so many firsts from the, the types of roles. Uh, I was thinking of The Liberation of L.B. Jones, a film that you did in 1970, William Wyler's last film. You, you also directed a film, Time Limit. I'm glad you mentioned L.B.J., because The Liberation of Law Brian Jones, I almost got fired off that movie because William Wyler wanted me to cry before and after I killed Bumpus. You played a guy who sought revenge against a policeman. Talk a little bit about that and you and why they're right, right. being at odds about a certain moment, uh, because I think that's really interesting. Well, Willie, Willie was, I, I was afraid of Willie. He's the biggest director in Hollywood. And telling Willie that I don't want to, I, did, I, I said, Willie, look, we're not going to get anywhere if I cry. That's what Mantan Mullen and Willie Best and those old black actors from the 20s and 30s did. I said, there's no emotion here. He's going to kill him, and he's going to walk away from it. And they sent me back to my hotel room while they went through the footage to find out whether they could cut me out of the movie. Jeez. I knew that's what they were doing. Two days later, they called me back. They said, okay, well, what do you, how do you want to play this? Thing? I said, no emotion. He comes down off the hill. He tells him to get off the uh, get off the uh, the tractor, and he pushes him into the goddamn thing. And he walks away, mm. and Willie Willie trusted me. He came to me. He said, "All right, let me see what let me see how this looks. Stand there and do what you're gonna do." So I did. He went around and he looked in the camera. That was the moment because he could have insisted. He could have fired me. I and I when the, he, I saw his face break into a grin. And he left behind the camera. He came over to me. He said, you're going to make fucking history. <laughs> That's what he said. You're going to make fucking history. And when that movie opened up, one of the Columbia people told me when we were on the road promoting it, he said, boy, this is going to be something. I said, why? He said, the movie opened up in theaters. And in each theater where black people were, it sounded like a baseball park when you walked on the screen. They, they could hear the chairs coming up out of the out of the theaters. Wow! I saw the picture in Chicago. The people went crazy. You could not hear a sound 
in the theater. That's the screaming and applause. And it. it was sort of like a Jackie Robinson moment in a way. <laughs> you know, we don't think of that. It was. We don't think of that in cinema, you know, and, but, it, you know, 1970, 1971. When that film came out, it was playing at the Paradise Theater in the Bronx, your old home. Right. And a pipe bomb went off during the screening in the orchestra pit. There was a there was a brass pipe bomb. No one was hurt, thankfully, but the audience refused to leave because the storytelling was so powerful. That's right. We don't talk about that in terms of history, um, but you know, you've you've made tons of it, man. Get your hands on your head. And get over here. So you finally knew it was no use running. I'm not running anymore. You might have to work you over, by God. Jumping out of a patrol car after you was arrested. Never done phoning me, you, Mr. Stanley, like you was told. Better tape his mouth if you mean to work him over first. Damn you, Stanley Bumpers, will you, by God, shut up? I'm trying to reason with this man. Now, for the last time, are you going to call Mr. Oldman? No. What are you saying for yourself, nigga? <laughs> <laughs> For the last time, are you going to call off the divorce, for God's sake? No. You know what you're forcing me to do? You by God know you're asking for it? Go on, tape his mouth. You got a prayer, LB, you better by God pray. Only peace. Huh? What do you say? Amen. Where are you now? You're in the Philippines? Yeah, yeah. When did you first go to the Philippines? Was that nineties um, or right after homicide? I met a beautiful Filipino woman that I love very much. And you married? Oh yeah, we've been married now for almost twenty-five fucking years, man. <laughs> How did you work that out? You asked her for directions, man. You move fast. Did you say where is Manila and would you marry me? How did yeah, that work out, yeah, man? <laughs> I did all of those things. It wasn't easy, too, you know, because you just, you just can't marry a Filipino woman. you got to go through a whole number with their families and so forth and so on. But I passed the test, and we got married in in, in uh, Baltimore in a cathedral uh, kind of where, where Will Smith and his little lady got married. We got married there, and uh, we've been together ever since. I'm very happy. Why the Philippines? I'd come here with Muhammad Ali to watch the the show the, the, uh, in Manila. And uh, I fell in love with the countries in, and then I kept coming back there. This place was a, it was a, it was and is a very, very spiritual and friendly nation and safe nation. I don't have to worry about getting jacked up by police officers or worry about anything. It's a relaxed place to be, and so if you want to, if you want to experience the milk of human kindness. You'll go to the Philippines. I lived in Cebu really briefly, uh, the Philippines, and the fruit, the fruit and the fish. You know, if if you've never, you don't think you've eaten fish till you've been in the Philippines eating fish and the fruit. That's right. That's exactly the right. Jackfruit. All that stuff, jackfruit, fish. Yeah, well, I I I eat all that stuff that my wife eats. And as you say, you don't, you never taste the fruit or fish until you eat in the air in the Philippines. You said since you were a boy and you were nine years old was your first uh, sighting, watching a stickball game. To transition a little into that, not not much, but a little. Uh, the views you have now as an adult, as a, as a man, do you feel you've always had these views, or have they grown over the years as you've met more people? It's annoying because it doesn't go away, and I have not been able to talk about it as much as I would like, mm. and I really don't want to talk about it because I'm not into in trying to build a fellowship or leadership, but it's just been an annoyance. There's not been a time in my life where extraterrestrial or some kind of phenomena that I can't explain has happened to me. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm really afraid about talking anymore because I don't want people to say, well, what's wrong with him? Or... He's telling the truth. Let's go find out what he knows. I don't know anything, but I will tell you mm. that it's a, it's a, it's, it's a something that I, I've joined the ranks of all the people who've had these, these sightings uh, and, and experiences. It started when I was nine years old, looking out the window, and, and it's still with me to this day. And another other things that have happened, and uh, I've been seeing those things flying around and strange people and 
just, just, just unexplainable. I wish the America government uh, would admit that there are forces and, and other entities and cultures living right here among us. Do you miss living in America? Oh, man, I love my country. I went way back to when, when uh, the Civil Rights Movement, someone came up to me and said, what do I think of America? We were in the streets devastating. I said, uh, United States of America is a stepping stone to the stars. I said that then, I say that now. All of my family, all of my relatives, are my uncles, including my mother, served in the Second World War. While I was growing up, my mother was in the Army. My uncles were in the Army, the Navy. I love America. America is a place where I became Yafit Koto. As a matter of fact, I went to uh, England and uh, was supposed to promote blue collar. And they, they, these guys were saying, holy shit, well, you know, it's, it's terrible in America. Sydney's not happy. Harry Belafonte is not happy. I defended my country. That was, and that's the, the same reason why I had problems. Listen, they would not let me go out with with uh, with uh, uh, a living let die because I wasn't saying the party line, man. I wasn't putting my country down. I never will. Wow. Wow. I was never will put my country down. As again, America is where I became Yafet Koto. America is where is the reason why my net worth is five million fucking dollars. People don't understand that you can't go biting the hand you feel because it's rough. We don't know what it is. It's rougher in other countries, man. So those people who don't like America should do me a favor. Get the fuck out. Go somewhere else. Don't get down on your knees. Protest. Pack up your millions of dollars and go live in fucking Africa. Go live in Brazil. Get the fuck out of my country, man. Get out of America. If you don't like America, get out. Do you still feel America is your country? Do you still feel at odds with not living here? You know, you're obviously passionate about America. Do you feel conflicted that you don't still live in the United States? No, no, because we, we, I live in there. We go back and forth. We go back and forth. We stay six months here. We go back and forth. We go back and forth all the time. My children are still there. There's no conflict at all. I'm a citizen of the world. My career is everywhere. So, but my base of action is the United States of America. When I was Frederick Samuel Cotto, nobody was helping me become Yafet Cotto. Frederick Samuel Cotto, the name I was born under. Uh, 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 the people have tried to get me to to uh, to turn against the present president. I tell them, go fuck yourself. I'll, I'll I will be for who I want to be. Before I was born, my German father came from to, from Douala, Cameroon. He could not get a job anywhere. He could not get a job. And then he ran into a person who introduced him to a man named Frederick Trump. And Frederick Trump gave my father a job in construction in Queens. And the money that he made from Queens, my family and my mother grew up. I grew up on the money that my dad worked for, Mr. Trump, in Queens. Nobody else gave my father a job. And if my father did not have a job, I would not be here. Wow. So the people who want me to turn against the president will have nothing to do with politics at all. But those people who try to step on my parade, I am not turning against my country. It's my country. If they don't like it, get on an airplane and get the fuck out. <laughs> I'm not laughing because anything you said is funny. I'm just, that's an amazing story, man. That's a really amazing, amazing story. Uh, incredible story. I uh, was speaking with Yafakoto, and you know it's funny. I don't know if a lot of people know you were on the you were at the mall in Washington, 1963. I have a dream. You know what happened? Let me tell you a story. Let me tell you. I hope this song doesn't give out because I want to give you this story. I was right at the mall, right at the first floor with Dr. King, and when he started saying, "I have a dream today," I closed my eyes and I said, "God, please, one day help me become." a successful actor, as he, because he said that we're all going to be somebody. I said, there's any place to pray, here's the place. There's the pastor. And so I prayed to God to help me become a successful actor because I could see from where I was standing. Marlon Brando was up there, Sidney Poitier, Harry Belafonte, Tony Curtis, all these big stars were there. And I said, wow, look at this. So I prayed that prayer, okay? Years later now, follow me, 
Years later, my daughter comes to visit me on the set of Homicide. And she, I said, come on, let's go somewhere. So she takes me. She said, Dad, you were at the March on Washington. And I said, yes. She said, could you show me where you were standing? I took her with where I was standing. I took her to that exact spot. And I said, Natasha, I stood there at this spot, and I looked up at Dr. King right above me, and I prayed to God that he would make me a successful act. The minute I said that shit, I realized, holy Toledo, my prayers were answered because a bus full of Japanese kids had just pulled up in a bus and they jumped over off the bus and they ran towards me with, I was a hundred of them with pads and starting, Yafin Cole, Yafin Cole, and I said, I, I couldn't help the emotion. I said, Jesus, my prayers were answered and God took me to my daughter's ear and, and I signed those autographs. I was emotionally wrecked after the whole day. Well, I, I was thinking of Poitier, Sidney Poitier. Did he retire from acting? Yeah, he did, yeah. Do, why do you think? Why do you think he did? He he broke the, all the doors. He broke, We were in a limousine one day, driving, going to the airport, and he looked at me, he turned around, and he says, do you know what I've been through? And when he said those words, it went right to me because I knew exactly what he was talking about. So he, 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 he really knocked down every goddamn door that was, I, I, I finished up the job, but he started kicking the doors open and I, and he, he helped, he helped me in a lot of ways. So he was the, he was the, he was the hero. He's still a hero. I think we forget a, that Poitier is still with us on earth, you know, a, and B, that his trail is no less important than a Brando, you know, in the sense of, I'm not talking just about trailblazing, I'm talking about skill. I mean, anyone listening to this, put on any Poitier movie and just watch some of the greatest acting craft ever, you know, and something about Poitier and you, you're craftsmen, you know, and and I think that's another thing. But, you know, the conflict about acting, though, Yafet, is it's like tennis. You could do it for a long time. What made Mitchum, what made Hackman retire? You know, is it just the business? Is it, is it, is it just they, they've done it all and there's nothing new anymore? Is, is it cynical? Are there only cynical reasons to retire? Or are there positive reasons to retire from acting? I don't know. I, I, I don't know what those guys are on their mind, what made them retire. But I'm, I, I don't find it necessary. Look, I'll, I'll probably just leave the world on the sound stage looking for the to work. I this I don't want it to retire. I think they got tired of it. They these the same old, same old. It's hard for me to say because those guys were much, much, much older than my, myself, and so I don't know. I, I think that one day I probably will feel like they felt, but I still I'm still looking to to do things. I'm not looking to retire unless God says come home, then I have to do it. But uh, no, I'm not looking to retire. Right, this is this is getting to be too interesting. Well, well <laughs> this this life thing and this this art thing. Um, as we get to one of our last beats here, uh, I was wondering: do you do you look back on films? Uh, a film you did uh, called Thomas Crown Affair just just turned fifty this year. Another film you did uh, that had a little bit of a legacy to it called Alien turns forty. Before we talk a little bit about Alien for the eighty millionth time. Um, do you look back in that way? Do you think of the anniversaries of your movies? No. Why? No, I think it would offend God if I did start looking back. Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't want to mess with God. He and I have too many fights, and so I, I, don't, I don't look back. I don't like looking back at the old films. You know, I don't even like looking at them. For Christ's sake, I'm going to look <laughs> back. I'm not looking at. It. It's over with. Um, I look forward. You intellectualize this because you're you're an intellect. I think intellectualize this. Does what does the 40th anniversary of Alien mean philosophically? You know, forget about your work in it. You know, put yourself aside for a second. What does it mean intellectually? Because it means a lot to a lot of people, right? Intellectually, it means that it was an opportunity, as the liberal let die, to once again changed the whole fabric of black performance on screen. Prior to Liberal Let Die, there was never uh, a black villain chasing James Bond. And then when Alien came along, there was never a black man in the who ends up being a hero in an alien film, in a science fiction film, none. 
there's none there. And so that's the history. I look back on that and said, that's the reason why they got all these brothers in Star Wars, this war, that war, this spaceship. This started with Parker. And so the black guys are all over the place. So that's what I, that's what I look about. The change that God has permitted me to make for, for African-American males. The change that, that was brought about with Living Let Die. And so those movies, accumulation in them, created a humanity for African-American performance that no other film has ever done before. So yeah, in that respect, I look back at what God has done. Because I couldn't have, he did it. God did it. He put me in that position. We found this lane there. No blood, no Dallas, nothing. How come I don't hear anybody saying nothing around I'm this thinking, place? unless somebody has got a better idea, we'll proceed with Dallas's plan. What? And then don't blame the others? <laughs> no, you're out of your mind. You got a better idea? Yes. I say that we abandon the ship. We get the shuttle and just get the hell out of here. We take our chances and just hope that somebody picks us up. The shuttle won't take four. Well, then why don't we trust Rutherford? I'm not going in these drawers. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. We don't know That's that. the only way. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered, and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? It means killing it. Means. Obviously, it means killing it. But we have to stick together. How are our weapons? The weapons are fine. This one needs refueling. Will you get it, please? Ash, go with him. No, no, I can manage Ash. Don't follow me. Do you feel like we're in a renaissance for black film art? No, no. No, they're not. They're sliding back into different things. No. Give me an example of where it's sliding back. I don't want to hurt anybody. So I'll say to you that we're not telling stories that have anything to do with us. These positive men that I was in had something to do with the particular people that were in them. And Sydney. There is no, they call me Mr. Tibbs anymore. This is my dignity. There is no. So we're not really, you know, people go around saying, I want to be James Bond. You can't be James Bond, man. Go look in the mirror, okay? Why, man? Come on, Idris Elba? Wouldn't he be a great James Bond, no? <laughs> no, he would not. His skin is black. James Bond is white. Let's stick to the issues here. Let's not fantasize. And if a black man pays that, plays that role, it's going to end the franchise. So Barbara Broccoli said, wake up. When, she was, when, when her dad was alive, he was telling me that she wanted Bill Cosby to play James Bond. Come on. James Bond is white. So to stop, to stop pushing that idea that, oh, we can play anything. No, you can't play anything. You know, okay, I'm going to be, James, I'm going to be John F. Kennedy. My next role is John F. Kennedy. How about that? I'd pay to see you play that. <laughs> no, I understand your point. I, I'm not laughing at it, but I would. Because you got a sense of humor. That's why I would pay to <laughs> hey, see that. But come I'm on. Not... Let, let, the, let the James Bond alone. If these people want to play a part, invent a hero of your own. Stop trying to drag the white man's thing and shove it in our faces and say it's acceptable. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And white guys can't say it because they're afraid of being accused. I'll say it. Back the fuck off. Stop trying to be the nigga getting bigger playing some James Bond. There are plenty of black heroes to, to play. Create one. What are you going to do now? Because somebody's going to play Babe Ruth as black? Come on. <laughs> so I can't play Jackie Robinson? No, right? I'm teasing. I'm teasing. No, you can't. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. You can't play Jackie Robinson. You know but, that, but, man. No, I, I understand. But let me ask you a question. I totally understand and respect. You know, a lot of 
you know this this genre that a lot of people don't like to talk about, which cinema lovers love, black exploitation. A lot of those films were directed by white dudes. Was there any conflict in that for you? And and again, it's a you know across 110th Street, uh, Drum, uh, Monkey Hustle, films that you did, you know, Chuck Turner. Uh, these these films were directed by white filmmakers does that feel conflicted for you and it, do, do you feel that's a contradiction no no it didn't, it didn't bother me I, you know I, i'm not into that bag man you, know, you understand son my father comes from africa my mother comes from panama okay my mother's a jew my father's a jew i have i don't have i can't go back oh what happened in alabama mississippi nobody in my family was there okay my grandfather was a king who went to school with Karl Marx. I don't have the, this this thing about you know the white man is the devil. He shouldn't be doing this. It's not in my family, man. And you know what I'm saying? It's not there. We're not from America. I can mention as much many stories of black kids kicking the shit out of me because I was wearing yarmulke and my hair was thick and dirty and I was black as a sandwich. They called me a little black ink spot. Midnight run. These are black kids now. These are not white. All the torment I received in my neighborhood with my name was from black kids. Did, what did white kids think of you as a, as a kid wearing a yarmulke? Well, they took me out of the public school. They put me in Catholic school, and, and I never had any problems with any white kids at all. My problems came in the Bronx from my all-black neighborhood who thought I was just too black. Blackie, black midnight run, kinky hair, jungle bunny. All that came from black kids, man. To me, that's abuse, and, and I'm sorry you had to go through that. It strengthened me. The fact that I could not get a black girl to date me because I was too damn black strengthened me. It, distress, it strengthens you. It doesn't break you. It can't break you. As long as you have Torah, Yarmulke on your head, it cannot break a Jew. Okay, no matter what you do to us, no matter how many times you beat me down, I still come out ahead. By my willpower, I will overcome all obstacles. Did you ever run into one of those kids from school, like later life? All the time. Yes, I do. Have they ever been contrite about that? No. No, they still have. They still harbor feelings of uh, ill will towards me. They still do. Just a couple more thoughts with Yafet Koto generously giving us his time. You know, just to wrap up on Alien a little bit, because so much of it's been litigated as a film. Um, have you been asked to celebrate the film? Has anyone from the studio or, you know, has any group said we want to bring the cast back together to celebrate the 40th anniversary? Have you been engaged to celebrate the 40th anniversary? Yeah, I did a couple of those things with Ridley. Uh, yeah, I've done a couple of them. I've gone out with the movie. I'm proud of that film. Uh, I'm proud of it. You know, it's a, I don't think people will have experience with a movie again as everything is being CGI'd to death. We had real sets and there, all that kind of stuff. So I'm proud of I'm proud of the filmmaking. I'm the process, and I think the film made history and changed the whole goddamn world around. I see people wearing my clothes, people playing certain roles, trying to act like me, trying to say, "Okay, keep going. You keep trying to redo what I did. You're only making me even more prominent before by not looking for your own originality." So my Parker headband, I should sell that, or should I just? I'm I'm sorry. I'm teasing. No, you're a funny guy, man. That headband you wore it just kicks badass. No one was wearing headbands until I did blue collar and and and, and alien. Then the head, then all athletes, everybody started wearing it. I tell my students to watch blue collar. It's got three of the greatest cinema performances, I think. And actually, you know, not to isolate, but you know, Richard Pryor, you know, that in that film comes, you know comes from another planet, pardon the metaphor. I mean, you're all incredible. And Paul Schrader told me something. I asked him, what was the key to working with those three guys? And he said, I told them each they were the lead of the film, uh, which was <laughs> one, of the great, one of the greatest pieces of direction ever given. He did, too. He did. He did, too. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that, that's chess playing. That's chess playing. And it works because really for that film. It, he, did, he did do that. He did say that to us. But he doesn't know we all knew it because we got together. He said, look at the fucking Paul Schrader. He thinks he's fooling us. <laughs> we all knew he said that shit. We talked, we talked about I'll it. I'll tell Paul that. Um, you said in 1991, um, I don't want to exploit acting. Um, do you feel being, you know, 
brought back to celebrate a film is exploitation or celebration, and what's the difference? It's a celebration. I want there's one thing I want to remake. You can tell Barbara Broccoli, I want to remake the I want to remake the ending of Live and Let Die. It's silly. And it should be done over again. You swallow this silver pill, right? And then you blow up. Yeah. Stop the connection going up in the air as a balloon. Come on. Which it cannot be done. And everybody knows it. It cannot be done. Black people talk about it, how bullshit that was all the time. Where's Kananga? Well, he always did have an inflated opinion of himself. So rewrite it now. How how should that, so you're fighting Bond, and how should that work out? How should that go? He should come back, Bond. He's got to come back to kill Bond. So you want him to kill Bond? Well, he's going to try. Yeah. He's going to try and get revenge. <laughs> talking about actors retiring as we wrap up a little bit, we're talking about anniversaries, you know, how you reflect on the films you do. When actors pass, let's talk about Sir Roger Moore. What did you think? And and again, it's not about you being friends or not. Did it cause you to reflect on yourself? No, no, no. I was sad for three or four days. Of, I was out on communication and didn't talk to anybody. That was my reaction to it. We were we were good buddies, and I really miss him then and miss him now. And because of him, I learned a lot about being an Englishman and learning how to dress and learning one-upsmanship and all the rest of it. I learned a lot from Roger. And so um, it was a personal loss. Uh, people try to start start all kinds of rumors between he and I. We were like this. It's all bullshit. Robert, we were, like, we were good friends, man. Let, let me tell you that once. Well, it's interesting because he was kind of a baby then. You know, that was, the fir- that was his first Bond, Live and Let Die. And it's funny, I-, I love Bond, and people say, oh, there's no Bonds in America. I said, are you an idiot? Watch Live and Let Die. That's basically all America, you know? and it- it's That's it- all America, right. It's Harlem. I mean, it's, it's an incredible, I think it's still one of the great Bonds. Um, you know, th- th- that's the other thing I wanted to end a little bit, you know, this idea of acting and retiring. I hate stunt casting. I hate when directors bring back actors, you know, just for show, you know. What about that? Because I was thinking, you know, if you got a script from, let's say, a Tarantino, right? You know, he does this a lot. He brought back Robert Forrester. He brought back your colleague, uh, Pam Greer, for Jackie Brown. If Tarantino wrote a role for you, would you look at it cynically or would you look at it celebratorily? That's not a word, but would you look at it honestly? Or do you think it would be stunt casting that you would not want to go for? I, no, I don't think I would do a Tarantino film. Why? No. Why? No, I, no, no, I'm not for Tarantino's work. Is is it his use of culture and language and casting? Or he writes on a level of a common denominator that I don't want to go on, and I don't want to take that down. I, my the characters that I play always have a, a step above. The stuff he writes about is gutter shit, and I'm not going to go there. But I mean, he writes he writes down dirty. He, I mean, he writes he writes uh, the, the, a low, uh, lower consciousness of life that I'm not going to go down on. Pam did Jackie Brown. Did you see Jackie Brown, Pam Greer? Yeah, I know. It's just good for her, but I would not work with anything he does. I don't care what he writes. You know, I am a little angry at you as we leave here. The rumor has it, or the, the, the word on the street is that you were going to play Jean-Luc Picard. With all due respect to Patrick Stewart, uh, is that true? Were you going to be Picard? Yes, yes. Oh man, that would have been badass. And it still may happen because they're once again talking to my agents about me being in Star Trek, and I, and I think it's going to happen. I could not get out of a project that I was in already to play John Luke. I wanted to do it, but I had committed myself to something else. And the way to get sued. It's a walk away from projects because you've got some other nicer thing going on. And I couldn't do it. I wish I could have done it, but I was tied up. The other fantasy you screwed up for me, with all due respect to Billy D. Williams, is you and Lando Calrissian. Is that true, too? Were you going to play Lando Calrissian? Yeah, Irving Kirshner and the guys offered me that at lunch at Pinewood Studios, and I told them I, could, I don't think I should do it. Because, again, I wanted to do it, but I was trying to play uh, to to go to Ohio to do Brubaker. When, when people say, why did you try to roll out? Because if you're a busy actor and people come to your office and you fall in love with the script and you say, yes, 
Then the next day, somebody else comes. You say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. You get people pissed off with you. I'm lamenting that just to tease you a little bit, but I actually think that the real headline is that you're an actor who uh, respected the craft and the people involved. So you didn't just drop Robert Redford, not that you would, to do, you know, Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I gave my word that I would do Brubaker right after Alien was done. And I did, but I couldn't do it because that's how you set up enemies in the business. Look, I, I started in this industry when you had to go to acting school, finishing school. I've been through the whole Hollywood system before it died. And one of the things that I learned from Hal Roach, this is a handshake deal business. No contracts in those days. Guy said, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Your word was your bond. I don't know about now, but that's when I started the business. I started the business was was, was still Hollywood. People forget that I'm an old Hollywood actor. You know, the studio system. Nobody gave anybody a contract. And funny enough, after you did the movie, a year later, you'll get a call from a secretary saying, Yalbert, would you please come in and sign this contract over the movie we did last year? We didn't get you to sign it. And you, and you say, okay, they send you and you sign it over a movie you did last year. But guess what? Every single thing that they said they were going to do when you did that movie, it was done. And there was no contracts. So when people say to me, Yafa, are you going to do this? I say, yes, absolutely. But it just so happens I was busy, man. And, and these things kept coming up. And I said, Jesus Christ, why is this happening? And I said, well, just go along with it. You know it wasn't meant to be. It wasn't meant to be. I will never do that. I want to end on a grand note with you. Uh, you've been really generous with your time. But in a way, your work represents a system and a style, in a sense, and a craft that really doesn't exist anymore. And I mean that as a compliment. No, it doesn't. So here's my last question. If you've not retired, which you haven't, we've proven that, uh, Counselor, why would you want to go back? Why? Is there still a place for you as a man, as a, as a, as a, as a, as a man of work? You know, is there still a place for you, or do you feel you don't belong anymore? Yeah, no, there's a place for me because because I don't have to ask anybody what projects I can do. I can put the projects together. I can get the distribution. I've got the name to make deals all over the world for film. I don't need to ask anybody in the studio to do a movie. I can get a green light my own project. Why would I not want to take advantage of that? There's not many actors that can say that. You know, and I'll call people to work and I'll do two or three more and that's it. Do you miss it? Do you miss acting? Yes. But, but motion picture acting is not acting. It's looks. I miss the stage. I really do miss the That's acting. What I do in film is not acting. It's looks. Attitude. But acting is close with the stage. I, so I, I need one favor as we say goodbye. Uh, when you take over the SS Enterprise, uh, just email me because I want to be in engineering. And I want to tell you I'm giving it all it's got, Captain. Oh, that would be great. What you can do, promise me you'll send me a, uh audio of just so I can put it on my website. If I can be of any help, uh, if, if next time you're here, if you ever have time for a hello, let me know. And take care, uh, Professor Koto. Be well, and we'll catch you again down the line. <laughs> take care. Okay. And tell, tell Tom Fontana hello for me. You used to say live and live. If this ever changing world in which we're living makes you give in and cry, say live and let die.
sitting here thinking of something Yafet said, that if a black actor was cast as James Bond, it would retire the franchise. It reminded me of something George Clooney said. He was asked, uh, after he did Batman and Robin, which was a notorious bomb on many levels, he was asked if he would ever reprise the role of Batman for another movie. And he said, I pretty much retired that franchise. <laughs> And, and in a way, he did. He retired that chapter, thankfully, of Batman, that middle chapter, not the Burton chapter, the middle chapter, which gave rise to the Nolan chapter. But is Batman retired? I don't know. I'd like to have him on the show, but he won't return my calls. I want to thank Yafet Koto for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. Download the show, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, share the show, join us socially at MSFMurmur. Twitter, Instagram. If you have a tender subject you'd like me to handle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will take your tender subject. I will take it tenderly. I will invite a guest and we'll rough the shit out of it. (laughs) That's the deal. (laughs) Agreed? (laughs) See ya.